Welcome to Helpful Social Work. Social work has the power to change people's lives for the better. This podcast aims to help you learn, think and act with integrity so that people who need social work get help that will transform their lives. Welcome to Series 6 of Hopeful, Helpful Social Work. I'm Jo. I was going to call it Hopeful Social Work then. Yeah, that's a good name for it as well, that's actually. not too bad either, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I'm Jerry, and we are partway through a series looking at equality and anti-oppressive practice and using the Equality Act in England as a framework. So in our very first podcast of Series 6, we looked at some of the ethics and the social work role around fighting discrimination. And now each month we're looking at evidence relating to a protected characteristic and the discrimination and oppression um, that is experienced and thinking about what social workers can do. Uh, So last podcast we talked about sex discrimination and this month we're looking at equality in relation to sexual orientation. And um, a big thank you to everyone who has downloaded Helpful Social Work and uh, just give you some interesting facts about our Canadian listeners. We are most listened to in the Ontario province, and that's followed by British Columbia and Alberta. We've also had 39 downloads on Prince Edward Island, so thank you very much for that. See, that really excited me because of Anna Green Gables. I think it's absolutely fantastic, yeah. And we really, we hope you enjoy the podcast, and um, let us know what you think by visiting our website, www.helpfulsocialwork.com, or by commenting on iTunes or on our Facebook page, Helpful Social Work Podcast. And if you do have time, please leave reviews on iTunes if you can, because uh, these help other people find us. I should just mention that when I posted the podcast 6A, I actually didn't manage to include the link initially. So if anyone did have any problems with that, I'm sorry about that. Um, It is now. It's been live now for a while. Well done. Jerry does all the heavy lifting when it comes to actually, you know, getting this up and up and managing. So we should say a big thank you to her for all the effort she goes to, actually. Thank you, Jerry. That's a nice way of reframing me making a mistake, Jo. <laughs> I'm a social worker. What could I say? <laughs> you know, today we're talking about sexual orientation. Um, and Jerry and I were reflecting just before we came on air live um, that this has been a really tough series of podcasts for us to do um, because it keeps pushing us out of our comfort and our knowledge zones, I think, and really stretching us, which is a fantastic thing. But we just wanted to kind of go back over why we'd thought that the Equality Act would be a good thing for us to talk about. So as we said, we're talking about sexual orientation as a protected characteristic under the Equality Act. And what that means is you're protected by law from discrimination. And, you know, we know that there are some limits to the Equality Act. It doesn't cover every country, but it does relate back to the Declaration of Human Rights on non-discrimination. And it doesn't cover every characteristic. And it doesn't reflect the way the different aspects of identity and discrimination intersect and overlap. And I know that we keep talking about intersectionality, um, Kimberly Cranshaw's work, but that is so helpful when you think about um, an individual and all of their multiple perspectives, that it's important to think about that when we're thinking about equality and how we can approach social work. It also doesn't go as far as the expectation in social work ethics to challenge oppression wherever and whenever we see it. 
but it's a really good framework for looking at some of the important ways in which people are discriminated against and helping us think about how they relate to each other. And it's been a really great anchor for us to get into these discussions about social work practice. So not an easy anchor, I would say, Jerry, but a really good one for challenging and changing and pushing our perspective about. Yes, and I think the the big thing for us, you know, um, that we were talking about and that you've you've kind of alluded to is it's it's uncomfortable I think because because of a lack of knowledge um yeah we are both really learning and we also have a lack of lived experience from yeah. most of much of what we're talking about um so yeah we have said previously that we we do really want to um enable helpful social work to become a platform for other people to talk about their viewpoint and their experiences so again we kind of reiterate that invitation um we are striving to 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 you know arrange with people who have contacted us to make that possible um and i think you know although we we start with the equality act as a as a kind of um a helpful as a helpful starting point there is there is much more to say about any of the things we're talking about um mm. so for example the equality act says that you must not be discriminated against because you're heterosexual gay lesbian or bisexual um, in terms of sexual orientation or that someone thinks you have a particular sexual orientation or you're connected to someone who has a particular sexual orientation um, and, and that idea of sexual orientation um, within the Equality Act includes how you express yourself, um, for example, your appearance, the places that you go. Um, there is, you know, our aim here is to, to take an inclusive view and think broadly about sexual orientation because um, terms vary so when we're talking about evidence later on they'll be sometimes used often sexual orientation and gender identity are linked together in statistics and in data and in evidence and in experience um, and we'll be talking about sexual orientation rather than gender identity in this podcast so another really helpful way of thinking about this is um, is what amnesty talks about when they talk about sexual orientation which is the way you identify yourself through desires feelings and sexual activity whether that's towards people of the same sex or opposite sex from you so I suppose just to, to finish I mean there is something that both Joe and I have kind of talked about which is that fear of getting it wrong that mm -hmm. can mean that actually having conversations or discussing things or thinking about things or learning um, gets really stifled and you know, you're, you you can't be an ally if you're not prepared to enter into things. So we will probably get well, we will get things wrong, um, yes. but we don't want that to, to stop us trying to develop our social work practice. And also, too, uh, I welcome um, the chance for people to uh, add to our learning and to point us in the right direction and to suggest reading and to, you know, kind of come back and challenge some of the things we're thinking. Because, you know, one of the wonderful things for me about social work and, and about doing um, these podcasts is that it's an opportunity for us to keep developing and, as you say, to just keep improving. And that's one of the things you can do lifelong. Um, so, yeah. Jerry, it's interesting that you, you've, you've talked about Amnesty's International's um, definition there, of course, and they're fighting um, for the rights of people who are imprisoned and persecuted around the world. But it's worth saying a little bit about how recently these rights have been recognised here in the UK. 
so um, around sexual orientation. And these are just um, from the timeline that's uh, done by the British Library. And it's, and it's worth us just really thinking about these dates and, and the kind of language as well. So it wasn't until 1861 that the death penalty was abolished for acts of sodomy. So instead, they changed it to being punishable by a minimum 10 years imprisonment. In 1967, the Sexual Offences Act partially legislated same-sex acts in the UK between men over the age of 21 conducted in private. Scotland and Northern Ireland did the same in 1980 and 1981, um, respectively. And you'll know, um, some of you just, you know, when we think about Alan Turing and the work that he did and the fact that actually he took his own life because he couldn't live the way that he wanted and that wasn't that long ago. And so, you know, this, this act had a huge impact on the way people lived their lives. Um, the age of consent equality did not come in until 2001 in England, Scotland and Wales and 2009 in Northern Ireland. Here's, this is really interesting when we think about us. Um, a lot of social workers work for local governments and um, Section 28 of the Local Government Act 1988 banned local authorities from promoting homosexuality or pretended family relationships and prohibited councils from funding educational materials and projects to promote homosexuality. If we think about that in the context of same-sex families, and same-sex couples wanting to adopt and people and children and young people trying to grow up in same-sex families and, and be supported. That's, that's quite a, a stark piece of legislation there. It was actually repealed in 2003, guys. And um, David Cameron, the Prime Minister of the time, apologised for the legislation in 2009. So that's in that little sentence in that little statement is a whole range of anguish and humiliation and difficulty I think for people and what they were forced um, to live with and if you think about us as social workers particularly if you're a child and family social worker that was part of your employment conditions basically so, you know, these things are worth, are really worth thinking about. We, um, you know, in 2004, the Civil Partnership Act allowed same sex couples to enter into binding partnerships. Um, and then finally, they were able to marry the Marriage Act 2013. Um, so in 2013, and then Scotland in 2014. And then finally, same sex marriage in Northern Ireland 2020. Um, and I personally know of two dear friends of mine who've been together for, you know, 30 years who got married because they could, you know, after waiting for a long, long time. So the Equality Act 2010 gave protections from discrimination, harassment and victimisation. The legislation brought together the existing legislation. It added protections for trans people. Um, but as Jerry said, we'll be looking at the trans rights when we look at the protected characteristic of gender reassignment. But I think if we reflect on those dates and those and the intent of that legislation, um, it's it's really powerful actually just to sit and think about social work role in in all of that. 
and that might link into that history might link into some of the um when i say history the last bit was only mm. last year you know yeah um it might link into some of the statistics around um you know, who identifies as lesbian gay or bisexual in the uk so in 2019 that was 2.7 percent of the population which is an increase from 2.2 percent in 2018 um younger age groups most likely to identify as lgb um and that was an increasing trend and older people had a much much lesser trend but also an increase mm. um and in it's different in different regions as well um so looking at england for example in london you're most likely to identify more likely in london than in any of the other areas of the country so what it looks like is that there is a a trend of increased identification as lesbian gay or bisexual across different age groups but higher where maybe it's more acceptable mm. um or feels perceived or is perceived to be more possible and there's some other kind of important statistics, I guess, to be aware of as social workers. Uh, so 2019 to 20 sexual orientation hate crimes increased 19 percent on the year before, um, so 15,835. And that's partly due to, to better reporting. Uh, so we, we still probably have a, a huge under reporting. Um, oh. There's lots of um, really important research around um, generally looking at LGBTQIA plus group as, as a whole around um, issues with access to health and social care. Uh, so um, there is a, a potential increase in um, need for health and social care due to kind of psychological issues um, arising from discrimination and stigma. So there's research from Stonewall British Psychological Society and, and various other researchers um, and impact on mental health and particularly that being higher amongst black, Asian and ethnically minoritized people. Um, there's issues around um, stereotypes and stigma and discrimination within communities. Um, and there's also a particular issue for older people who may be more likely to face harassment or misunderstanding or ignorance about their needs and services and that's work by the Equality and Human Rights Commission. Um, there's a particular issue for younger people around um, housing so um, again work by McNeil and, and, and colleagues looks at a fact, the factor of um, sexual orientation and identity causing people to to become and remain homeless um, due to things like family rejection um, or um, stigma or discrimination or potential abuse and, and that also causing barriers to people actually accessing uh, services like homeless shelters and, and, and services for people who are experiencing homelessness um, and, and there's a really stark statistic that one in six LGB people have experienced homelessness mm. at some point in their lives. Yeah, that is a stark statistic um, and it's, you know, one of the things that we have to be thinking of all the time in our social work practice. Um, you know, if we if we go right back, you know, this history that we've talked about, how that affects the way that people feel, act and are perceived, you know, particularly if you're talking about older people, Jerry, and you're thinking, you know, about them living for years when it was actually illegal and it wasn't okay to have your relationship recognised and you weren't allowed to have family. Um, there was all these things that were happening. So you could see how those pe people carry those histories with them, don't they? And, and as a social worker, we have to be curious about that and think about it all the time. And I just know. should just um, highlight actually the 
the the stigma and discrimination was similar for um for females with the sexual orientation for same-sex relationships it's just that the legislation wasn't there because it it was dismissed as as a yeah. as a possibility by male legislators yeah so that was a primary reason yeah yes, that, but there's this, the similar sorts of you know, yeah barriers and and oppression yeah it's interesting isn't it is it is it better for to be acknowledged in law or to fly under the radar because the the kind of you know because it couldn't even be possible you know but both both areas would bring the distress and, and I mean I think as a social worker you're really thinking about you know the shaming and othering of people um, and how people were you know not able to access support you know poorly or unfairly targeted services you know real discrimination in in service responses um, are things that we have to be curious about, and 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 we talk, and you know, in this case, we're talking about it as if it was history, but it's not history. It's about the unequal barriers people face right now, and the poorly and unfair and unfairly targeted services that they that they um, are still getting. And for me, it comes back to us really understanding how sexual orientation intersects with all the other aspects of the identity, and the other areas of oppression and and I agree with you for especially age and ethnicity where research tells us, you know, for example, the twenty eighteen report by Stonewall and YouGov says that black, Asian and minoritized ethnics on minority ethnic LGBT people, sorry, I just was reading this out, so I sounded a bit awkward there, are more likely than white LGBT people to experience domestic abuse from a partner. And it's quite high at 17% compared to 11%. So once again, our curiosity about what's happening for people um, in their day-to-day -day life is, is something that we need to be thinking yeah, about. I'm not thinking time. about a homogenous group at all yeah, yeah. um exactly intersection has such a um, such an impact on people's life experiences it's really helpful isn't it it's such a helpful way to think about an individual and for me it comes back to working properly as a social worker around identity and not ticking boxes but actually really being curious about people's day-to-day -day lived experience and trying to I remember I, I, I kind of for me because I, I was thinking about this the whole time that I was doing this writing and researching and reading and I was thinking why why wasn't this kind of all right in front of my nose all the time and I thought well it was because for myself and for the other social workers that I've been practicing with that I know if somebody told us that they were gay or they were lesbian or that they had a different sexual identity from me, I would just go, yeah, okay. And I would accept that because for me, I didn't feel it was a problem. But what I didn't do, because I was practicing in 1988, you know, um, and I can actually remember in, in foster care, in foster care circumstances, um, we did an assessment of um, uh, male carers who wanted to be who wanted to foster um, and it was considered quite kind of controversial at the time in Australia but I don't think it was illegal or I don't think it was against the you know the government act but I think for me there was that acceptance came perhaps with 
a lack of, I didn't explore enough. I moved away from the topic, if that makes sense. Like I didn't feel I had enough right to be curious about something which was essentially private. I mean, yeah. Yeah, and I think that for me, that's that's probably similar. And also the, yeah, I suppose I would add to that, that you know, the hesitancy about talking about sexuality. Um, yeah, that's and, what and, I was just thinking. Yeah, and working with an older population as well, um, I think I definitely fell into the you know very well evidenced issue that it's kind of assumed that it's not so much an important part of people's lives, um, or can be assumed. And I think the lack of time sometimes to to take a life course approach and think about someone's personal history also means that their identity gets very narrowed um, to mm. to what. You know, like we've talked about this before, the snapshot of what's happening for them right now, rather than the richness of who who they are. Yeah. Uh, and there's some really um, useful work that's been done by the Centre for Policy on Aging around, again, um, a kind of a, a wider group of older lesbian, gay, and bisexual people and older transgender people that was done in 2016 and looking at diversity and older age, and does highlight this this issue that we talked about around experience being um, affected by. How, people growing up through the, the period of, of, of you know, legal oppression mm. um, and and actually also they highlight that there was a um, that, that homosexuality was classified as a form of mental illness as well um, there's, there's particular um, things to think about around um, potential risk so LGB older people are more likely to be single and live alone less likely to have children less likely to see their biological family frequently and that's quite often linked to you know, discrimination by their family mm. um, in earlier life um, there's there's some um, more prevalence around drinking alcohol taking drugs um, and having a history of poor mental health and again that will be caught up with those life experiences and Particularly, um, it's more likely that LGB older people will have been diagnosed with de depression. And then only 40% yeah, of people are not confident that mental health services will understand and meet their needs. So that's just an example of, of where um, there's, there's a real barrier to trust. Mm. Um, and there's a real need for services to understand what family can mean. So family might mean friends or network um, rather than kinship networks. Um, and around a third of older LGB adults don't see members of their family. Um, and then, you know, thinking about the kind of the equality um, of the services that we offer, um, you know, making sure that those are accessible and inclusive. And you know, they, they really often um, haven't been. Uh, so, for mm. example, you need to have um, images and promotional material for care homes that just doesn't reflect the diversity of relationships. Um, practitioners making assumptions about sexual orientation or um, not recognising LGBT partners or families of choice. Uh, and that's a particular issue at end of life where there's still this traditional idea of next of kin um, and, and actually the legal framework doesn't necessarily work for people who have different sorts of family relationships or, ne or mm. you, who they see as kin. Um, and yeah, we make assumptions and, and use inappropriate language um, in services. Um, and the other issue that um, older LGBT people have identified that they're 
that can really concern them is the potential for being inadvertently outed. Yes, yeah, they've spent their whole life protecting or trying to um, manage their privacy away from people because they felt they've had to. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, as again, as I've kind of looked more into this, you know, reflecting back on my practice, mm. I can see just how far from really um, you. Um, exploring and being curious about people's experiences. Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because if you think about people who have, you know, as as we grow older ourselves, as I grow older myself, you know, I feel the generation gap growing and growing for me. And some of my experiences that formed me are no longer relevant at all. Like, for instance, you know, today you can get married. Um, if you are a lesbian or gay couple, but actually for people my age and some of my friends, they spent a long time having to deny their relationships in all sorts of ways to protect and manage in mainstream society. And those habits don't die so easy do they you know um so so while the framework while the society around you may have changed those feelings that you have inside and the life path that you've taken um may well need more care and respect if that makes sense we can't assume that just because legislation's moved that the person has been able to shift the difficulties they've experienced no and there are social um trends that are very static as well um you know people who don't um don't progress their ideas uh, for yeah. lots of reasons and that would include um so from, you know, from my experience being a member of the catholic church that's that's mm. an ideology that hasn't advanced in this regard um although many many people within the church have so it's, it's those kind of um barriers really really remain you see that through you know, I guess a, a really harsh example, a stark example, is is the hate crime figures. I was just know, about to say, to... you know, yeah, that means that people have good reason to be vigilant and careful. Um, yeah, so it, so it's it's really interesting to reflect on as laws change, you know, attitudes in society, and people need to feel safe, um, and more than that, accepted, and and that they're, that they're not othered all the time. I think those things are really important. And we talked with Jerry, you've been talking about older people. And of course, that just brings my head back into what's it like for young people and their families. And in particular, two things that you've said. One, that young people find themselves homeless because they're rejected by their families when um, they come out. And um, the other thing for me was that idea that as older adults, they'd have less family around them. And so I was starting to think about children in care um, um, from the LGBTQ community. And it's interesting, there hasn't been a lot of research in this country, although there's been much more research in the United States since the 1990s, actually. Um, And that kind of lack of research has led to an absence of policy so there hasn't really been a lot of emphasis on sexual orientation um, 
when we talk about identity. So if you looked at um, the care planning guidance and the assessment framework and all of those things and you were kind of using um, using any of them to guide your work, there's no real specific discussion on the needs of LGBTQ young people in relation to planning and supporting placements. Um, you know, and that, that's tricky because if you don't kind of have that in your head to start with, what's happened is there's just plenty of evidence that sexual minority children and young people face very real discrimination from residential staff and foster carers whilst they're in care, with some foster carers actually wanting young people removed from their care when they reveal their sexuality. And, you know, young people are already struggling to feel secure, accepted, um, they're separated from their families for many different reasons. Um, and so this behaviour on the part of the carers can cause more distress and damage. And social workers have to be really, you know, thinking about how can we help um, LGBTQ plus plus youth have family acceptance you know, yeah, it really points really to a lack of promoting. support, doesn't it, to those carers yep. as well. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's really key in promoting emotional well-being. So we really need to be working well with the birth families and the, and the current caregiving families to ensure that the um, young people's identity is understood and accepted. So it's a it's a really, it's not just something that we as social workers go, okay, right, I hear you. What can I do for you? You know, I don't have a problem with that. You know, accept and 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 demonstrate that acceptance. It's really about what work do we need to do to help you be accepted by your family, by your community, and to feel safe. So it's it's really important, um, and it should be central, actually. Um, and that's not to say that that's the only thing that we see about a person. So you wouldn't want to swing the other way so that every conversation you had with someone was all about their sexual identity. But I think in practice on the ground, we tend not to think of children and young people in terms of their sexual identity or activity unless it's considered problematic, you know, either unsafe for them or illegal. Um, you know, and as I've said, most practice I've seen when a young person does identify um, has been accepting and supportive. But I think we're not curious enough about the impact of their sexual identity on their care experience. And I don't know whether we think enough about how they're managing the microaggressions of everyday life that happen when you're perceived as different or when you can't find anyone around you you can relate to or talk to too openly. Um, so for me, there's something in the whole conversation we've had about thinking really early with children and young people about how to build those really strong, solid, accepting networks, um, how we can make sure they're networked into their peers and their community and really understand where they're getting their knowledge and their wisdom and their own feelings about their sexuality and managing their emotions and all of the difficulties that may arise, as well as all the joy they might want to share too. And I think it's quite good that we're talking about this now because we're recording this podcast in kind of mid-October and we've just had National Coming Out Day on the 11th of October in um, primarily a, a US um, awareness day. And and you know, the, the, the writing about that is about how important it still is both to celebrate 
um, people who are coming out, but also mm-hmm. to recognise and acknowledge the difficulties of coming out. Yeah. Um, and there was, there was a really great blog from one of your colleagues, Joe Mona Lisa, who oh, I know. Um, wrote about this exact kind of issue around um, younger people struggling, but also the practice response um, mm. and said, I'm just going to find the right bit because I absolutely, I thought it was brilliant. We need to make paramount the rights of children by not turning their needs into solely a gay rights issue. What this means is that as social care professionals, we have a duty to approach our work with children, young people and families in a holistic, non-judgmental way. Yeah. Yeah. I think it just it really just says it was where I was reaching for, which is which is, you know, trying trying to make sure that once again, yeah, we're attending to issues, but we're also, yeah, we're we're. Yeah, king yeah. of a person as a whole person, and yeah. And she talks um, and they, about yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I was just about to go on and say that yeah, yeah. <laughs> the gay affirmation model, um, which she also talks about in this blog, which um essentially means that social workers adhere to a set of principles, and then she goes on to um expand them. Uh, the first one being a cultural competency model that culturally competent practice with diverse client populations require a unique knowledge base, set of attitudes and beliefs and skill base for that given population. Um, and I think that's one of the nice things that we are, that, that I'm getting um, an opportunity for through these um, podcasts, Jerry, is to actually expand my knowledge base um, and to be able to think more and more about what's, what attitudes and beliefs and skill base I need to bring in to work from I think all talks about she talks about having a strength perspective. So and starting with focusing with a person's right to self-determination, focusing on health. I think, you know, really that idea of well-being and not pathology and consciousness raising to combat negative messages. Um, and I just like I like how she's, you know, spelt out exactly what that strength perspective would look like. Um, and then person in environment and this is about um, making sure that um, individuals are considered in the context of their many environments and their many roles that they play within these environments and I guess for me that's all about intersectionality and making sure that we understand the way that everything crosses for a person and then what systems are they in and how are those systems impacting on them and yeah the complexity of each one of our lives how 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 many different roles that we juggle yeah and she finishes by saying it's our responsibility as social care professionals to assure that when we ensure that when we assume responsibility for safeguarding children and young people no matter their identity our clarity of purpose comes through in every action that we take and that really relates to something that I've been thinking about as we've done this series which is just keep to keep coming back to the importance of not leaving it to the people who are being discriminated against to educate Mm others to challenge others to make the change and I think that's that's something that I have definitely done far too much um, in my life and in my practice and the the social work role is to um, is to be an ally is to Mm. um, yeah is to make sure that we challenge where we can and also um, I think the other recognition is that social workers you know, we ourselves may well encounter or experience or struggle with discriminatory beliefs um, mm. about sexual orientation or you know other um, 
elements of identity and so that's where the supervisory and the peer support and employer support is so important. Yeah, and I think for me, it's about the idea of social work. You're not meant to be comfortable if you're a social worker. I mean, we seek the uncomfortable places, I think. You know, we're looking for the edges or the margins in life, and we're trying to understand what's happening in them and to kind of um, help those places become better places and spaces for people to be in or change where people are. So that means a lot of the time, actually, we are going to be pushed out of our comfort zone and, and complacency is, is close to comfort in my, you know, so it's, so it's good to kind of be pushed out. And it's about being okay with not knowing and applying those those kind of you know I think that that framework of the you know the strengths percept perspective of the person in their own environment cultural competence competency I think these frameworks are really helpful because you can use them to manage the things you don't know or your discomfort if that makes sense so for me it comes back to how we understand and support children and young people and adults to explore their identity with us and one of the things I've been reflecting on is building your identity is something that happens slowly over time. And as parents and carers, we're usually exposed to those developing identities and we gain a good idea of how our young person is managing and forming if our relationship with them is sound. But often in social work, we're trying to capture a child or young person's identity in short bursts, kind of like an assessment here, a review there. And I think we need to pay more attention, attention to the kind of growth and movement over each period um, and there's a nice quote in the sky resources um, around working with lesbian gay bisexual trans queer and questioning people um, it says we need each lesbian and gay man to be seen as a unique individual within his slash her own context um, which is you know basically the message that um, we got from Mona Lisa's work as well and I think for me, the other thing I've been thinking about, Jerry, is when, when we get people get older, and you've said this, we cease to see them as sexual beings. Instead, we focus much more on their health and support needs, and we often don't ask them about their sexual identity. And when I reflect back, it's even more pronounced in the disability field, where people can be effectually de desexualized by professionals, carers, and families. And we don't, you know, we don't really think about um, people with disabilities, sexual identity, perhaps as much as we as we should. And I kind of wonder if we get more comfortable as a profession and as a people with accepting that people's own identified sexuality and how they express it is their own right. Um, and that we as social workers may also have to actively be involved in supporting people to be able to identify access and live out those rights as sexual beings. Yeah. Will that, that help us have better conversations? That would, that should lead to richer practice, shouldn't it? And actually, I mean, you've, you've just kind of dropped in there a whole other topic in its own right around disability um, and people with disabilities, which we haven't touched on issues around capacity, around expression, around um, the particular barriers that are faced. And I think 
yeah, we haven't brought that to the fore because we've both talked about the, the sort of specialist area of practice that we're more mm. aware of um, to transfer some of those principles into that particular area of practice. Um, and now I'm thinking I, I need to go and talk to colleagues who work in, you know, with people with mm. physical learning disabilities and, and find out more yeah. and think, think that the... area through. I think so. I think it came to me because, of course, when I started off in the 80s um, in the disability field, um, Wolf Wolfensberger was big with social role valorization. That was the natty little name we gave for, you know, helping people lead lives that they would value um, and that society would value as well. And part of that work that I was doing, actually, Jerry, um, involved um, human relations for adults with disabilities. And so I actually went on a course where I learned to help promote sexuality um, and find ways to help families and carers um, accept things like masturbation and um, sexual sexual um, behaviour, normal and natural, perfectly okay sexual behaviour in, in um, adults with disabilities. And so that was because, because then it wasn't accepted. It was like they just didn't have that part of their identity acknowledged at all. So this work was all about trying to help people see um, and start to accept their sexual identity. And it was considered really radical, really, really radical. Um, yeah, and it wasn't that comfortable to do, to tell you the honest truth, but it was really important and it wasn't that long ago. And I don't know how the field has moved on since then, to tell you the truth. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that it has, but as you say, it would be interesting to understand that, wouldn't it? But I, th I always keep it in my head um, when I work with families who have children and young people with disabilities is how are you understanding their developing sexual identity as well? Yeah. yeah. So I suppose the thing that I'm, I'm left with reflecting on is how much more there is to understand and just the importance mm. of curiosity. Um, yeah. Because for you know, a lot of my practice, sexual orientation or sexual identity was a kind of box on a, um, mm. On mm. a form. Yep. rather than a real um, sort of part of someone's life story. Yeah, acceptance is not enough. I think that's what I've taken away from this. It's not enough just to accept uh, the tick on the form and go, that's okay. It is, we really have to understand what in that identity matters to them and how we can help action what it is that mattered um, I mean, we could go back to that lovely quote, couldn't it? It's our responsibility as social care professionals to ensure that when we assume responsibility, in this case, we could say for working with children, young people and adults, no matter their identity, our clarity of purpose comes through in every action that we take on their behalf. And that's, so, I think, a collective responsibility. That quote really applies as well mm. to social workers' activism around this. And you know, many social workers have great practice and great awareness yeah. and great knowledge and expertise and are wonderful activists and advocates and allies and come from a place of both practice and lived experience. And we are not those <laughs> social workers. No, quite. but it would um, be great to hear for them. It would be great to hear from them, wouldn't it? And once again, you know, we end the show by saying, if you want to come and talk with us further about anything that we talk about, we are really open to that. Um, 
and I, I appreciate that at the moment because certainly I've got someone who's who's willing to come and talk with us, but finding the right space and time for all of us to get together is really tricky because the world seems very busy, Jerry. Mm. Um, but I hope that as it slows down or that as we manage to slow down or whatever happens, that, that we'll be able to have more of these conversations because I think it'll be really useful. Thanks, Joe. It's lovely to talk to you as always.